Welcome to Behavioral Grooves. My name is Kurt Nelson. And I'm Tim Houlihan. Are you new to Behavioral Grooves? Is this your first time listening? Well, if so, we have something to say to you. Welcome, welcome, welcome. We are so glad that you're giving us a listen no matter where you live. Behavioral Grooves will treat you to interesting and insightful conversations with researchers and practitioners of behavioral science, followed by a grooving session where Kurt and I reflect on what we learned from our guest. And we end each episode with the ever popular bonus track where we recap the most salient points in our discussion. And Tim, don't forget that in addition to researchers and practitioners from around the world, we also talk to accidental behavioral scientists. Bing. They're the people who are doing really great things with the principles of behavioral science, but don't really necessarily know all the terms or why it is that those things are working. <laughs> yeah, well, okay, good reminder, Kurt. We've had some outstanding discussions with accidental behavioral science, and there's a lot to learn from them, too. Before we get started with our guest, I want to mention a very cool event that's coming up in Los Angeles that might be of interest to some of our new listeners and our yeah, long-term listeners absolutely. as well. It's the Neuromarketing World Forum happening on April 1st through April 3rd at the Millennium Biltmore in downtown LA. There are many great speakers this year, but the first you should note is Antonio Damasio, who has revolutionized research in neurodecision-making, yeah. and one of our favorite Behavioral Groove podcast guests, Mr. Roger Dooley, is oh, also yeah. headlining the event. Yes, we, well, actually, Tim, <laughs> Tim will be there to record some interviews with some of the speakers uh, and potentially with some of the, the guests that are hanging out there as well. So we'll have an episode highlighting the event sometime later in April. There will be links in the show notes today if you are interested in attending. Uh, hey, by the way, if you decide to go, hit me up on Twitter so we can connect while, while we're there. Yeah. And your Twitter? At T. Houlihan. Perfect. All yeah. right. Also, we'd like to say something about how behavioral groups finds new listeners for all those new listeners that are listening now, but also the new listeners that will listen in the future. You know that we don't have any advertising, which people might enjoy, by the way. Of course, if you're interested in advertising, we'll, we'll <laughs> have you advertise with us as well. That'd yes. be great. We would love that. Totally so if fine. you're interested in advertising to all these great behavioral science uh, advocates, give us a call. Uh, no, but we don't have advertisers now. So we, we rely on our listeners and search engines and social media to get the word out about behavioral groups. Yeah, so a big part of this story is that Apple and other podcasting services use algorithms to determine which podcasts will be returned in the searches, right? And there's two really important measures that impact those results. Right. The first criteria is the number of reviews that the podcast has had, and the second is the quality of ratings the podcast has. Now, all of those get weighted more heavily the more recent they are. So go out today. If you left us a review eight months ago, hey, do us another review. It's okay. You can have two, and the more recent one gets weighted heavier. Okay, so it boils down to three things. More reviews, higher ratings, and more recent reviews, right? Exactly. Okay, so behavioral grooves will show up in searches by people who are interested in finding podcasts about behavioral science with your help. That's the bottom line. So we would really appreciate you taking a very, very small moment of your time to give us a rating or leave us a short review. That would be super appreciated. And thank you in advance for your support. But now, now, it is time to turn our attention to our guest. And speaking of neuromarketing, our guest is a neuroscientist who was born in Italy 
educated in France, and now works in the Australian government. Yes, she is. Chiara Verrazzani is the principal advisor at the Behavioral Insights Unit, or BETA, in the cabinet of the Australian government. She advises government agencies on the impact of behavioral science and conducts randomized control tests to determine the most effective behavioral interventions. Our conversation with Kiera was amazing. She blew us away with comments about the way our brains calculate the ratio between effort and reward and why most behavioral science interventions are relying on what she called old school methods. Yeah, it's a... It's also a terrific conversation about music. For her reference group of artists are amazingly talented, but regrettably no longer living. Well, well, aren't most of your playlists (laughs) dead too, or at least almost dead or- Not entirely. Being held in a state of, you know- Suspended animation. Suspended animation through all the drugs that they took. And Uh, they're just, there is so much great music that deserves to be listened to that was recorded before 1980. I'll give you that. Okay, so with that, sit back with a glass full of neuroscientific inquisitiveness and listen to our conversation with Dr. Chiara Verrazzani. Chiara Verrazzani, welcome to the Behavioral Groups Podcast. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. We are very happy to be here, and we're going to start with a little speed round. Kurt, do you want to get started? Sure. So would you prefer to bike or to unicycle? Um, definitely bike. I've never tried unicycle. I would love to. Uh, okay. But if I had a choice, I could even prefer doing using a motorbike, actually. <laughs> oh, okay. I like the motorcycle. Would, I just prefer- run to work uh, with a motorbike, so that's what I do every day. Oh, good. Every day. Wow. Okay. And what's your preference, coffee or tea? Um, let's say tea. Let's Even say I mean, tea. That that didn't sound very like authoritarian on that. Like, <laughs> yes, tea is it. Is there a, a back and forth? So I'm Italian. Uh, <laughs> so the default response should have been coffee, right? But I don't know why for what kind of strange genetic reason, but I I can't recognize good and uh, bad coffee. So you can't. You you must not be really Italian then. That's that's what my husband keeps telling me. <laughs> uh, there's probably some truth there. All right. So if you had to live a year without a laptop or without your phone, which would it be? Um, definitely without my phone. Um, oh, yeah. You can still use. Um, a laptop offline and doing quite a lot of interesting things where a phone which is not connected is not very useful, right? Yeah, good good rationale. I like that. Uh, so last question. Is it better to understand the brain in order to change behavior or does it matter? It does matter. <laughs> <laughs> Excellent. Well, you have written some articles that have talked about that. That's part of what you do. You're a neuroscientist here. So help us understand why is it better to understand the brain if we're really just trying to change behavior? Why do I need to understand what the brain does? I can get people to do things differently. Why do I need to care about what's going on inside that gray mass inside of our skulls? Yeah, sure. Actually, there's to me, there's several arguments for this. And the very first thing is that, uh, to me, 
how we are doing behavioral science right now, it's really, really old school. Um, <laughs> it's true. So when you think about uh, how we operate as behavioral scientists and when we try to change people's behavior, so say you want to um, try to nudge people to stop smoking because it's bad for them. What we do is just we study the input and the output. So we do a behavioral intervention and then we see what happens in the behavior. And that's what scientists at the very beginning of the uh, 20th century were doing. So really just changing the input and the output without knowing exactly what, was what is going on in the brain. Well, it turns out that in the 50s, uh, we had a, a cognitive revolution where scientists started to look into the brain to try to understand why people were doing what they were doing. And this cognitive revolution is not really taken into account in our daily job as behavioral scientists, at, at least in applied behavioral science. Um, so really, I have been doing uh, this job for, for a while. I'm a practitioner in behavioral science. And nobody has ever asked me something like, do you want to see what happens in the brain in order to understand better or in order to predict what people will do? So there's really a gap to me um, here. Um, so the, the first argument is really, given that we had a cognitive revolution in academia, why not having a cognitive revolution in applied behavioral science? Which is a, a, a totally logical perspective to take. Uh, and yet there's a big gap. There is not a lot of, I mean, Antonio Damasio has been talking about it for many years, right? But we don't really have a, a lot of research in this area. Why do you think there's a big gap? So the first reason is very practical, I think, uh, which is looking into the brain. It's actually complicated. Uh, it's, it's, it's not by chance that it's called the black box. Um, it's, you know, it's doing an fMRI, so trying to, to understand what uh, and which area of the brain is active while you're making decisions. It's very complicated. It's very costly as well. So that's the so, main thing. Yeah. So for some of our, our listeners who may not know what an fMRI is, what is an yeah. fMRI? Because I think it's, a, it's an important tool that is used in neuroscience, but not necessarily everybody understands it. Yeah, it's, it's the main um, tool that we can use nowadays, especially to know how people make decisions with the brain. So it's basically just looking at what are the um, activations in specific brain areas. So especially, especially for the cortical uh, part of our brain, so cortical areas, meaning the surface of our brain. If you want to go a little bit deeper and try to understand what's going on, for example, in subcortical area, so in very deep areas within your brain, you will use other te techniques. Like you will, you will need um, you know, an electrode in, in the brain, which is not something that you, you can do very easily. We tend, no. to, use, to, we tend to use animals for that. <laughs> No, thank goodness. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but but it, there's still this this issue of observing behavior while you have these electrodes in the deep you know deeply planted in the brain. So these are there's a lot of challenges with the research. Exactly. So we are talking about very invasive techniques. Mm -hmm. And you know, especially because as a behavioral scientist, we just want to observe people and change their behavior in a natural environment, right? Um so Using these kind of techniques in daily life, it's not something that we can do right now. Yeah, nudges are easier, really, in that regard. Absolutely. Uh, in terms of, you know, 
uh, tools that they will be developed uh, very soon. I think that um, electroencephalogram, so basically looking at the cortical activity on the surface of the brain without mm-hmm. going deeper, and they're developing more and more some portable electroencephalograms. It's called a, a portable EEG. So it's basically a band that you put on your on your forehead. Um, and it's it's good enough, but of course it's in terms of the data and the insights that you can have in the brain activity is quite superficial. Okay. So but but moving forward, right now there's a cost associated with it, there's an invasiveness that's associated with it. So some of the reasons why it may not be as prevalent as we would yeah. like it to be are because of that. But hopefully in the future, we're getting more sophisticated, more portable type of measurement instruments that maybe don't cost as much at this point, may not be as sophisticated, but we're getting there. And do you see that revolution happening in the next 10 years? Is it the next 20 years? Where where do you see it where this is just going to be so easy to do that it would that nobody will, you know, not have a brain component as part of their uh, behavioral science research. I really think that the the revolution is already happening, and it's mainly driven right now by business interest. So, if you look at all the new apps uh, trying to help people uh, to go to sleep, there's yeah. a lot of new apps and very portable and quite cheap technology that can uh, record uh, the brain activity of the people uh, just because there is a real business interest in helping insomniac people because there's so many insomniac in the world. I'm one of them. Me too. I'm I'm right (laughs) there with you. So sorry to hear that. (laughs) Uh, Same here. Same here. (laughs) Right. Um, And then going back to your question, really, another thing that to me it's really important, another argument uh, in to say that the brain is actually really important for behavioral scientists is to look at brain changes and not not only uh, behavioral change. So if you think about the concept of habits, right? Um, So most of the time uh, when we try to nudge people, we are very effective at nudging and changing behavior once. But when we're talking about very difficult behavior, so for example, smoking, um, it's 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 quite difficult to use just behavioral science techniques without knowing what happens in the brain. So the fact is that it's very unlikely that a behavior will uh, become a habit if there's no changes happening at the brain level as well. Um, this means that again, if if you don't know nothing about the brain, it's it's very unlikely that will, you will be able to trigger lasting changes even in the behavior. And I know in your in the articles that you wrote for behavioral scientists there was a fantastic study that you referenced in there that actually was about smoking and using yep. sleep uh, and using smells. Can you overview that because it was a fascinating study and I just want to I want to make sure our listeners hear about it. Yeah, I love that study. It's so much fun. I would have loved to be one of the researchers doing it, actually, uh, because doing it would have been very, very, uh, a lot of fun. So this is what they did. Basically, um, they focused their attention on a group of people who were um, smokers, like heavy smokers. 
And um, what they did is that um, in order to connect um, parts of the brain, what they did is that while these people were sleeping, they associated the, the smell of the cigarette to this, a very bad smell. And I think they chose rotten eggs. Rotten so basically, egg. oh. rotten eggs. So imagine these people were sleeping, and during the sleep, they, they were exposed to two different smells at the same time, cigarettes and rotten eggs. And the, the, the results were amazing because after, I think, two, only two sessions, okay. uh, these people really started just to dislike smoking. <laughs> and, and why is that? I, the smell has a strong component in neuroscience. So help us understand why the yeah. smell of that is so important in, in this brain aspect. Smell is actually one of the most fascinating senses. It's a very special one because the center of smell, it's very deep in the brain. It's not so much in the cortical area, but it's really subcortical. And it's very close to some centers in the brain, which are very important for memory and rewards. So all the habits center. It means that basically there are an overlap of areas uh, in our brain, areas that are coding for really the reward of um, smoking and the reward of anything. It could be drug, it could be sex, it could be alcohol, any kind of addiction. And it's very, very close to the um, center of the sense of smell. And so by basically, what we are calling this is basically hacking the brain, really. Um, <laughs> it's, it's strange to say, to say that we are not robots, of course, but in this case, it's really amazing that by just associating two smells, people were able to just, you know, just stop uh, having that impulsion to, to smoke. Yeah, that that is amazing. That that uh, that by connecting to something so deep in the brain, that it had this profound uh, effect. Yeah. Uh, and of course, and we we know we've known for some time that there are uh, that the addictive properties of uh, of nicotine are brain centered. Uh, so it seems like it took a long time to get the behavioral side of the house to connect to the neuroscience side of the house, given the fact that we we've known both of these things for some time. Exactly. And really, another thing that it was pretty amazing in this study is that the, the behavioral change was lasting. So mm. one thing that it's, I don't know if you have been smokers, hopefully not, but you know that uh, a lot of people who smoke, maybe they stop, but then it's not a lasting behavioral change. Well, if, you, if you're able really to hack, in, hack the brain and uh, change a little bit the brain structure, uh, it's much more likely that the, the behavior will last. And it's one of the main, you know, challenges for behavioral scientists nowadays to make lasting behavioral change. Yeah. So can you tell us a little bit about your job? What are you, what are you doing? And then I, I know you're working on some interesting research of your own. So help us understand, A, first a little bit, but what you're doing over there in Aussie land, uh, <laughs> you know, an Italian over in Australia or down under, and then what you're doing, uh, some of the research that you're, you're working on that you can share with us. Sure. So let's start with why am I in Australia, which is interesting. <laughs> that's a great place to start. That's, 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 a, that's a good mystery to solve. 
Yeah. So originally I'm, I'm from Italy and I studied, I spent most of my other life in Paris uh, for studying and then I moved to the UK working for the behavioral insights team. Um, and then I spent one year traveling around the world in Africa and South America with a tent. And during oh. that period I received, yeah, yeah, it's probably the most interesting thing that I have never done in my life. So <laughs> I can watch well, for the behavioral science project. Yeah. <laughs> oh, man, that sounds fascinating. Anyway, we, we will talk about anyway, that some other time. <laughs> so when we were uh, in South America, I received quite a lot of job offers. And at a certain point, I saw this job posting for um, Australia. And it turned out that Australia is mainly, I think, the yeah one of the, the best places in the world right now to be if you want to be a a behavioral scientist applying behavioral science to public policy. So they had the biggest uh, behavioral economics team embedded in government, and it's the biggest in the world. Wow. Um, it, yeah. It's larger than, than, than the London team? So the London in, in, team, in the, the behavioral insights team, where I, I, I worked as a research fellow in, uh, back in the years, um, it's actually not in government anymore. Yeah, they took it out. That's right. So they spun off um, quite a long time ago, and basically now they're still working a lot on behavior and on public policy, but they're not into um, into ten Downing Street anymore. They're not right. in in, go in government anymore. Whereas in in Australia, uh, the the BIT is actually inserted into the government. You're you're Correct. actually you're actually a government employee. Correct. Right? So yeah, I joined okay. that team, which is called. BETA, for short, it's Behavior Economics Team of the Australian government. And when I joined, really, there were more than 30 people. And I think now they're even bigger. Uh, so it's, it, was, it was great because then you have really the, the opportunity to change things from inside, um, which is amazing. And, and after... Almost two years at Beta, I then moved to a state government. So Beta was at the federal level. So basically okay. doing all the policies for an entire Australia. And then um, given that I wanted to move to Melbourne, um, I joined the, the, the same, a, a very similar team, but working at the state level jurisdiction this, in the state of Victoria. So my job, I'm, I'm a principal advisor. And my job is basically overseeing all the work um, done in the team, uh, which is mainly two different things. We first, we provide a lot of advice to government on many different things. So it's a very fast-paced work um, on any kind of subjects. It could be crime prevention, it could be education, health, um, any kind of, it could be even, you know, uh, trying to, um, to contain the, the fires recently. Mm -hmm. um, so it could be really on so many different things. So this is the first stream of work. And the second stream of work is much more long-term. So we run experiments. We, we, we always try to run randomized control trials. And we, we, I think, yeah, just in the last year, we were running, I think, more than 15 randomized control trials at the time. 
Wow, that's fantastic. That's terrific. And and those, again, are uh, looking at some of these other aspects that you give advice on. Is that is there on crime, health, you know, education, those types of aspects? Great. Yes. Can, exactly. can you can you can you share? I know that a lot of the work is specifically for the government's use, but is there is there something that we could talk about that you could share? Uh, yeah, in, absolutely. In, in any of those uh, RCTs? Yeah, we actually we we published our report six months ago where we try to share as much as we can our work, um, and this is available online. Anybody can have a look. Uh, maybe I can start with one example in that report, uh, okay. which is quite successful. Um, so one problem that we have, and it's shared in many different countries, one problem that we have in Australia is that for hospital appointments, so we're talking about public health, sometimes people don't show up. And given that it's free, um, you know, the, the, the incentive to cancel or reschedule the appointment are very low. Um, the fact is that for every missed appointment, um, we're talking about more than $100 lost um, for public health. So really what we try, we, we try to do there um, is just to convince people either to cancel, to reschedule, or to attend the hospital appointments. So what we did is that we sent letters um, to, um, uh, to patients and one thing that we did is that given that the hospital was very complicated, we added a map and we simplify completely how people could actually get to the hospital appointment. And it was a very simple intervention, but the, the results were pretty amazing. Um, so, yeah, uh, we, we had we, the percentage uh, was pretty high of people coming. Um, meaning that in terms of, as well, return investment, we were able to save millions of dollars for government. Wow, that's Just terrific. So, so, right. So looking at that letter and looking at adding the map into that, what, what was the hypothesis behind that? And then what were you anticipating? Why, why adding the map? What does that do for people in order to get them to come to the appointment or to cancel or, or reschedule? Yeah. So two main things. One, um, a lot of people actually, they, they, they forget about their appointment. They mm -hmm. just don't know. So the, the first zero behavioral change there is just a, a mere and simple reminder. This is the first, first thing. And then the second uh, part of our theory of change in that case was really that maybe people, they just don't know where to go. And it's quite, you know, I would be quite annoyed if I, I knew I had an appointment, but I had no idea where to go in the hospital. And in that case, we were talking very, a, about a very big hospital where people get lost quite often. Um, and so, yeah, we just try to, to help people and we, we try to remove the friction cost of not knowing where to go and just making things easier for people. Yeah, reducing friction is an is an important part of uh, behavior change, isn't it? Uh, oh yes. And, and, and even making even making good on the commitments that we've already made. I mean, these people made their appointments themselves. They must have had mm -hmm. some kind of healthcare issue that caused them to say, "I, I think I'm I need to see a physician. I need to see a doctor." Absolutely. Well, and, and we've talked with Roger Dooley, who written a book on friction. And, and you know, one of the interesting pieces about it is even the smallest little bits of friction that we rationally you go, well, that shouldn't be that difficult to find. You, you know, you go to the information desk at the front of the hospital, you you look at the map when you get there, various different pieces. But 
in reality, that it's all the, friction. It's all friction, and and even just removing that little bit of of concern, either in advance or as you're getting there to go. Oh, here's where I go, and not just give up and leave and go back. Uh, it can be can be really impactful, and I think a lot of times. Uh, people in business, people in government, people who are doing these types of things don't realize the impact that even little pieces of friction can have on people's behavior. So uh, that's interesting. Yeah. And so going back to the brain again, I did my PhD (laughs) actually on the ratio between efforts and reward. So okay. effort is really, it, it can be a friction cost. You know, the effort of trying to find your way into a complicated hospital maze. This is really, it's, it's effort. So for every small um, additional effort and friction cost that you add uh, on your um, intended action, people will, come, will, will just, um, you know, they won't do the thing. Right. So does the, is it easier to uh, justify more effort if the reward is higher? If, if you had a really, really big reward, um, would it make it easier for me to justify spending the effort and energy to accomplish something? Yeah. What I, what we discovered during my PhD and other researchers are working on this as well, is really that the brain computes the, the ratio between the reward, so saying in that case, having a specialist appointment in, I don't know, ophthalmology, so this is your reward, and the effort that you, you have to spend in order to get to that reward. In that case, what would have been you know, getting lost and potentially not finding your way and having to deal with annoying people, et cetera, et cetera. All these kind of ritual costs. What we discover is that if you try a very simple task where you, you model the, the amount of, I don't know, money and the amount of physical effort that you have to, to, to have in order to get the money, uh-huh. there's actually some neurons in the brain. They are dopamine, dopamine neurons. Okay. They encode yep. exactly this ratio. So their activity will go up with the expected reward and their activity will go down with the expected effort. So is the that higher a linear the effort relationship? that oh. they expect. Oh, I'm sorry to interrupt. Is that was that a linear uh, relationship did you see? Or was is, is are there certain go ahead. Yeah, it wasn't completely linear, meaning that if you if you look at were they more, these neurons more sensitive to the reward or to the effort, well, they're much more sensitive to the reward. Oh, than to the effort. Yes, that's interesting. Um, yeah, yeah. But, see? That's it. <laughs> but you know, I was giving, I was giving Tim a, a, a look earlier when he asked that question. Like, duh, yeah. of course, the the reward well, goes up, the effort's going to go up. It's human. Basic human 101, I, but what you're I saying wanna, is there's some nuances in in how this actually works. It's not a simple linear relationship. One more dollar equals X effort in this, and if we just increase it by ten dollars, it will then be ten X in effort. But that's not how it works. Correct. Well, but we have to remember that we don't ha- only have dopamine in our brain, right? Yes. So this is just one part of our brain encoding reward and effort in that case. But for example, noradrenaline, which is another yeah. part of our brain, well, these neurons are much more sensitive to the expected effort. 
<laughs> yeah. So again, it's not as so easy as, yeah, oh, I thought we had it all figured out. I was, uh, I was all there. No, what I think is so fascinating is that it, virtually instantaneously, our brains are making these calculations. We're assessing these ratios and making these, these judgments virtually instantly, right? Yes. This, yes. this takes almost no time. And because I, I, again, I'm thinking about um, the work that we've done in incentives and, yeah. uh, and, and rewards and, uh, and our brain is calculating even before we start exhibiting any effort, we've exactly. already made a decision whether or not it's going to work. Well, and, and, and then you get, you, you get to be. the, the other aspect of this, and this would be interesting. And I don't know if there's any research that you know of on this, but is the, extrinsic reward versus an intrinsic reward and, and the variance in, you know, maybe some of the dopamine release that is uh, associated with that, with the dopamine neurons as, as they're going and, and firing, or, you know, does one outweigh the other or is, you know, is it contextually based all of those factors that come into as we, as we walk, work through incentives, as we work through any type of, you know, looking at uh, decreasing friction or, de or, you know, decreasing effort in order to get people to do the activity that they want. You know, what are some of those intrinsic versus extrinsic rewards and, and impacts on that? So, yeah, it's a very interesting question. And of course, neuroscientists have studied much more extrinsic rewards just because yeah. it's much easier to experimentally manipulate extrinsic reward. Why? I give you more money. There you go. <laughs> um, but with intrinsic reward, so we're talking much more about, you know, the ongoing level of motivation. And this is quite different. And it's we're talking about um, a timeline that it's much more dilated. So intrinsic rewards, it's not something, it, it's basically almost a state. Um, so for example, if, if you are down, if you are kind of in a depressed mode in your life, um, your um, uh, sensitivity to both intrinsic and extrinsic rewards will be completely different. Which is, which, and, and, and I'm assuming that when you say different, that if you're in a depressed mode, the response to rewards will be more muted. It will be yeah. less, whether as opposed to being in a much happier space, if you're in a, in a more excited space, then the response to rewards would be, would be greater. Is exactly. That right? And it's a similar thing for the effort as well. When you are down, so when you are in depressed mode, definitely every expected effort, every expected friction cost, will will see you. You will imagine this as being much bigger than it's it is in reality. That's interesting. And going back to your hospital study, mm. you you have to wonder too if if you are going in for a hospital appointment, it may be. Uh, uh, in a more depressed state because you are actually feeling sick or some other uh, commodity, you know, a co casualty. What am I saying? I don't even know what I'm saying. Uh, but you might be in a more depressed state, which then lends itself to that map that we think of in a in a rather standard state is not a big friction cost. Gets gets uh, it's much pushed bigger. into yeah, it gets a lot bigger. Thank yeah. you. Thank you. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah. I, I wanted. I, I was wondering if we could uh, turn over and just talk a little bit about music. Sure. Yeah. Um, <laughs> you don't have to look music. at me, Tim. You always <laughs> I, ask music, and I always just I, go along because that's what goodness. I do. Thank goodness, uh, Kiara. You, uh, I, I, we know that you are a, a bit of a musician. That you, you do have some musical talent. 
but let's let's not start. <laughs> That's well, not accurate. <laughs> <laughs> you you play the piano, right? Just during Christmas time with okay. family, <laughs> yeah, and this is, this is, most of the and time they ask to stop. <laughs> I, you and Michael Halsworth are on the same plane there. Um, yeah. Okay, but tell us about what's on your playlist right now. What what kind of music do you like to listen to? Yeah, so I would say that uh, I love listening to music while I'm at work, and there's a very romantic things I, I do almost every day. My husband, since I think ten years is populating a playlist almost every day for me with things that he's discovering. And wow, wow, that's yeah. cool. So so you're not choosing it. He is he's curating the list for you. I would say so. The fact is that he has very good music tastes and is we, we really share uh, a lot in terms of mu- what we like. So most of the time I'm happy about what he what he chooses. Um, so this is one thing that I do, but sometimes, you know, I get a little bit bored about around having someone else choosing my music. So I rotate between, I would say, uh, three main singers. Okay. Uh, and, who, and who are they? So it's an Ita- so I speak Italian, French, and English. And what I try to do is to rotate between Leonard Cohen, um, Jacques Brel, and Fabrizio D'Andre. So there are three, yeah three people who are actually they're all dead now unfortunately um, <laughs> oh. and yeah it's just the, the their music it's just amazing and I'm always happy to to listen to them well honestly I haven't heard anyone say wow I listened to a lot of Jacques Brel uh in hmm. well let's say ever uh, maybe <laughs> really? since college yeah I think that that's that's pretty amazing uh, I'm a little bit old school yeah, I would say. I would say very. I would say very, but not as old school as, I mean, by the way, you are the uh, fourth um, I- Italian uh, behavioral oh, science wow. researcher that we've talked to. We've talked to Silvia Sicardo, Francesca Gino, Christina Bicchieri, um, and uh, we, we love them all. Um, they're, they're all terrific, but they all mentioned that they listen to opera, of course, because- Opera? I don't listen to opera, sorry. You don't listen to opera? No. No, never. Wow. Um, okay. <laughs> and you tell them you, you can't tear apart a good coffee from a bad coffee and who doesn't listen to opera. I know. What, a, what about even some string quartet, cause quartets from Vivaldi or anything mm-hmm. like that? Not really. Wow. This is, this is, this is a day in infamy. Okay. Well, here's, <laughs> here's a question for you. Uh, you get these playlists. Do you like to listen to them while you're working or how, or do you like to have any music playing while you're working or silence? Yes, I, I really like listening to music while I'm writing, especially when I'm doing data analysis as well. It's a good thing. Mm-hmm. Um, I would say that the, for me, the, the language is quite a thing. So I can't really listen in French or Italian if I try, if I try to focus a lot. Just because, oh. yeah, like, you know, in my brain, French and Italian are really um, immediately um, encoded in a way. So I tend to listen in English or any other languages, actually. That's fascinating because I would, I would assume that because you are, you know, translating those languages or, or you know, having them encoded right away, it, it would be almost a dual, like you're, you're doing, you know, dual task at this. Yeah. So... Yeah, but wow. actually, when it's in a foreign language, you can 
just ignore the the lyrics, right? Become yeah, because then it becomes another instrument, right? It is literally just a, which is what I think of when I listen to French music, you know. So it's (laughs) I I just it's beautiful. It it has a nice uh, element of of harmony or whatever it is that goes along with that music. Well, and is that part of the point that when you're working, you don't want to be distracted by the words, or because the words themselves become distracting? Definitely. So I found that for working. Um, music without any words, without, you know, um, without nothing, or as well, like uh, electronic music or yeah. music in another language. It's very helpful. Oh, do you, do you have any artists that you'd like to share with our listeners that are that you're fond of? Yeah, so I think uh, recently I'm listening quite a lot. Um, an artist who's from... The Sarah region, I think he's from Algeria, and is trying to combine music from uh, basically music they play in the desert in Sahara okay. uh, with electronic music. And I think his name is Bombino, if I remember correctly. Okay. We will we will look that up, and we will yeah we will make sure yeah. that it gets put into the show notes, and yes. we'll have a link. Bombino, so. um, really is really great. Well, sound good. It sounds fascinating. It sounds absolutely fascinating. Love love hearing about about new artists. Um, and uh, so, you do you also curate your own your own playlists? And I'm wondering if you use any of those playlists for priming for particular events in your life. Um, that's a good question. So I have a six months old baby now. So unfortunately, congratulations. Yeah. Thank you. <laughs> Get that in insomniac already, and and <laughs> six months old. Those are right. two two things that don't go well together, or maybe they right. do because you're already up. So it, exactly. Uh, so one thing that we do is that we we try to put together playlists with music we think she likes. Um, so sometimes we have very random playlists without any sense of continuity. Uh, okay. So you can jump from the wheels on the bus uh, <laughs> to Jacques Brel, uh, this, yeah, in, in, in a matter of seconds. <laughs> All right. So your husband curates a playlist for you that he's been doing for a long time now that you are, you know, al- aligned with. Do you do you re- reciprocate in that? No, do you? A, no, it's, it's a one-sided <laughs> way. Yeah, I, I did it okay. for the first couple of years. I think we had a playlist that I was curating, but now it's much, much more. Yeah, much more into <laughs> it. <laughs> which, which happens? Which happens? And so, is your daughter a Jacques Brel fan? Um, I think she prefers the wheels on the bus. To be fair. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, that's terrific. As most six-month-olds do. There you go. That's right. That's right. All right. Well, thank you. This has been fascinating. I think this our listeners will enjoy this. And so thank you so much. We it's a real pleasure. Time. Yeah. Thank you, Kira. Thank you. That was great. And looking forward to listening to other episodes as well. We are big fans here in Australia. Yay. All right. Thank you. Thank you, guys. Welcome to our grooving session where Tim and I groove on what we learned from our Behavior Grooves interview, have a free-flowing discussion, and whatever else comes into our old school brains. Did you just riff that or did you read from a script? Honestly, I, it looked like you were just totally riffing it. But I read from a script, oh. damn it. Because <laughs> you didn't put it in, but I copied and pasted and put that up. You think my brain is that good? 
I do. You know better than that. You're the PhD. I'm the PhD, but you have the kiki brain. I have the boo-boo brain, booba brain. You know that. Yeah, all right. Uh, old school. Yeah. Old school. Well, let's start there. Is that like old school the movie? No, no. I don't think so. Oh, okay. No. <laughs> I loved that that Kiara instantly you know, went to saying, we have new technology that could help us understand behavior change better yes. in the world of neuroscience. And I, I think that she's claiming that it's underutilized right now, uh, but that, that we're just missing out on a big picture if we're not studying what the brain is doing between the the input or the intervention and the output. Right, between that stimulus and the response, what what yeah. happens inside of the brain. Yeah. And, and again, I think we talked a little bit about you know why some of the reasons that that wasn't happening, the costs and the impracticality of yeah. getting in an fMRI <laughs> right but with right. the advent of some of these newer more mobile smaller less costly ways of measuring some of that neuro activity I think in the future it is definitely something that behavioral scientists need to do yeah uh, and not be stuck in our old school ways of just trial and error, which is, again, those are good ways. It's not saying that yeah. they're they're incorrect. It's just saying- It's just incomplete in, it's in her mind. Incomplete. And, and let's add that extra layer of understanding because there might be some insight that we get from that neuro perspective that lends itself into making that behavior change or that behavioral science insight even more powerful. Right. Because she even went so far as saying that habits aren't going to be created- Unless we really understand what's going on in the brain. That, well, that a simple nudge doesn't necessarily create a habit. Yeah, we, we've, not- we've talked about changing the, the position of the cookie jar in the cafeteria, f- moving it from the front to the back, doesn't actually change the habit of I like cookies. All it does is make me less likely to buy a cookie at lunch. At that point. And so there's a lot of behavioral science that works on establishing habits. And we've talked about when, then statements and various different things. But understanding why those things work at a neurological perspective can probably help us create better interventions to ensure that those behavior change initiatives, either done through a nudge or some other type of intervention, actually have staying power. Yeah, definitely. Okay, you were fascinated by the smoking cessation study, weren't you? I was fascinated by a whole bunch of stuff in this (laughs) conversation. Um, But yeah, the smoking cessation and using sleep and smell. Yeah. (laughs) Smell while you sleep. Oh, Dang. Yeah, that is <laughs> that is that is super cool well, shit. Well, I go back to, you know, all of those old like, oh, you'll learn while you sleep and so listen to this cassette deck as you're sleeping with your headphones on and all that was pretty much, you know. That was all debunked. Yeah, it was all debunked, but this actually has some real cool uh, research that indicates wow, this actually has some impact. And yeah. and I think part of it as she mentioned is that smell goes to that really deep part of our brain, that reptilian part of our right. brain, that it it cuts through some of the prefrontal cortex aspects that are there. And so in our sleep, it connects those two pieces together. So, wow. This is what one of the things that I love about the work that we've done in incentives and the incentive research is because rewards connect to that very 
very old part of our brain, that reptilian brain. And so it gets me to think, what would it be like if we somehow connected smell to rewards? How much more powerful could they be? They could be really more powerful. Would it be cool? Yeah. (laughs) Well, think about that. Smell takes you back, right? It is this piece of the pie, and I use pie (laughs) intentionally. intentionally All right, all right. Because you smell that pie when you come home. Yeah. And where do you instantly go? A part of your brain instantly goes back to if you experienced fresh smelling pies as a child, which I did, mm-hmm. and you kind of have that warm feeling. So it's an emotional taking you back into your memory. And and I, I can't speak to this with any real confidence, but I believe that smell has one of the biggest impacts on memory as well. Yes. I've, I've, yes. I've, if I remember the research right. Yeah, it's very powerful. And, and I had a, a personal experience of that a bunch of years ago. Uh, walking past a flower shop that had, of all things, a bunch of pear flowers. So, like, like they had a bunch of these. You know, they were clipping the twigs of fruit trees. Okay, and pear has a particularly distinctive uh, smell to it. Okay, right. And uh, I grew up on a farm where we had wild pear trees. Right. And so, instantly, without even thinking, I'm, I'm walking past the door of the floral shop, and the the pear smell came in and all of a sudden I was taken back to my childhood without even connecting it to, oh, that smells like pear. Oh, so I must be thinking, no, it was just all of a sudden I had this memory of walking along the hillsides near these near these pear trees. And I thought, why is that? Okay, so going- Powerful stuff. Going on to the incentives, how would that happen? What would you- uh, would you have the fresh smell of money? Uh, no, no. As non- part- it would have to be non-monetary. Non-monetary. <laughs> right. Uh, and would you use that as part of in, I don't know, you get a scratch and sniff uh, to, inst- to help be. you get uh, excited about could and be motivated up to the, maybe, the maybe program? Maybe motivate you to set the goal. It could be it could be something to make you feel comfortable and, ex- and uh, positive uh, in your life. Well, I mean, think about Cinnabon and how oh. they pump that smell out into the malls and the airports oh that you God. go into. They are evil. Because <laughs> <laughs> it works. It works. Well, it does. You're, you you know, you're actually salivating over that smell. Um, and so, cause it's good stuff. So can you, you know, tie an incentive with a Cinnabon thing and then, you know, have, yeah. a, have that smell come. There yeah. you go. Or bacon. I, Bacon's a great. <laughs> or bacon. <laughs> I don't know. Just not too random because I love the smell of bacon. <laughs> I think, but there are, I mean, smells are a very primal piece, but her work going back, uh, you know. Oh yeah. Yeah. To, this is about to, Kiara. To, to yeah. Kiara and then that research. <laughs> I mean, it's, they're using it for really cool stuff, smoking mm-hmm. cessation. Yes. And tying that horrible smell to, you know, the, the smoking part. And so uh, making that association fascinating. Fascinating. in their brains. Yeah. So what can we do, like, every night? What should I be doing? What kind of smell should I be having to set my goals more or doing different things, you know? Yeah. I don't know, but no, don't but, know. but listeners, if you've got an idea, let us know. Yeah, that would be that would be cool. Something else that was really fun to talk about was the impact of nudges and how. Uh, well, this is when we were talking about getting people to their doctor's appointments. Yes, and it's important to have the reminder, and in some ways, the reminder of oh, guess what? You've got a doctor's appointment coming up is a duh, right? We all because that's very common. 
Yet she found that it wasn't working as effectively until she started sending a map of where of how to get to the doctor's appointment. Right. That made a huge difference uh, in, in getting people to show up. So it's understanding from a behavioral science perspective, what are those friction points that are getting in between my intention mm-hmm. to do something and actually doing it? And one of those that because of adding this map in, one of those friction points was not really knowing where I needed to go for that ophthalmology appointment. Right. And so, and so I, it reduced stress and reduced friction, of course. Yeah. Yeah. It reminds us, uh, it reminds me of uh, uh, one of our friends, Peter Engstrom, who trains people to clean stadiums. Mm-hmm. He has this uh, multi day training session and then sends off the new recruits the next day to go to the stadium to start their work. Right. And he has a 50% decline in the between the number of people who who are trained and the number of people show up the next day because the stadiums have very very specific uh doors that people have to go through to get in to do their job. So they, he had at at before when he started the 50% of the people that showed up for the training then wouldn't, would wouldn't have an attrition rate of right. 50%. But he adds in a map at the end of the training session. He hands them a map and says, this is where you're going tomorrow with a picture of the front door. The actual door that they have to go in. Because again, remember, these people are getting there prior to- Prior to the event. The event yes. or after the event is done. So all the main gates are closed and they have a special door that they have to get in. And which- guess what? 100% of, of, of the people who had been trained show up. Just by giving them a map, it was pretty fascinating. Wow, that yeah. is great. Yeah. So uh, the other piece that was really fascinating to me was the idea of how our brain processes the ratio mm. of mm-hmm. reward to effort. And that that is done instantaneously, and it's it involves the dopamine networks, uh, which, again, in, in my personal opinion are the most fascinating part of our brains. These right? neurotransmitters. The, that are, the dopamine transmitters and, yeah. and the the impact. I mean, dopamine is such a interesting neurotransmitter in all of the facets that it plays in. But mm-hmm. obviously one of them is motivation and this desire to do things. And yeah. so the amount of dopamine that gets released uh, comes into play in thinking about the reward to, ra- to effort ratio. Whoa. <laughs> it is whoa, isn't it? To me, that part of the conversation with Kiara was was the big boom because it completely validated something that my boss from more than 20 years ago told me in a discussion about, well, how, how big does the reward have to be? And he just said, it has to be enough to overcome the effort, the, the perception of effort. Mm. It has to be a, a generous enough reward that I connect to it emotionally, and that needs to be enough to overcome whatever perceived effort I'm going to have in in achieving the reward. Right. So a $5 Starbucks gift card, <laughs> right. right? It, it could be just absolutely enough for something that is trivial and doesn't require much effort. Anything that right. requires a, you know any modem of real effort that probably won't be enough. Exactly. Rewards need to be relevant to the people. So that means the rewards are going to differ depending on how much money you make and your socioeconomic status, your lifestyle, where you live in the world. Rewards need to be relevant because you can't just have a $5 gift card for 
every activity for every amount of effort. Or even a $25 gift card or a $100 gift card, whatever that would be. Any amount. Right. And and those aspects of it, those are, you're talking about an incentive where the reward is known in advance. So this is is a, this is a, all right, if you do this, you will get X, Mm -hmm. right? Um, How about that same piece? And this is something that I think would be interesting, again, from that dopamine neuron you know, element of the reward that comes like that recognition that is a surprise that comes is a thank you. And I wonder, uh, again, I don't know, we didn't ask Kiera this, but, you know, what is going on in the brain in those instances? Because we know that those are very powerful and that that $5 gift card for, you know, staying extra hours at work because you had to get something done is actually, all right, that actually is meaningful and and good. Maybe it's a $10 gift card. Mm-hmm. I don't know. Uh, whereas if you would have put that in place in front of them saying, hey, I know you're going to be pulling, you know, staying here until 10 o'clock tonight. Here's, you know, if you do that, I'll give you a $10 gift card. Would have had a very different Response. I think about our conversation with Yana Gallus yes. when we were at the University of Pennsylvania. And Yana was talking about specificity and in addressing these rewards, that when there's a high amount of specificity, we're, this is an incentive. If you, I'm going to give you this amount if you do this. It's, I, I, she jokingly talked about kisses with her husband, yes. you know, mailing the invitations to the children's birthday party. Right. I'll give you one kiss for every envelope. It's like, what? Yeah. Like that, that specificity, especially in the social Right, norm. and it becomes that social versus financial norm, which yeah. again, you know, you talked about with uh, the, we talked about with James Heyman in our very first episode here. Episode number uh, one. Number, no, two. No, number one. Number no, one. Episode number, number one. one. Yep. So that social versus financial transactions, yes. right? And but where I'm really interested is so what's the difference in the brain? So what can yes. neuroscience yes. shows? Because we know this stuff happens, right? But we don't understand the mechanisms that make that happen inside of our brain. So I go back to the very first part, which is we're old school. We're missing it. We're missing and we're the brain We're missing science. this opportunity yep. to understand why the same reward is very different mm-hmm. from a brain neurological perspective. So wouldn't it be cool if Yana Gallus's work and James Heyman and Dan Ariely's work on the on the specificity and the the social versus financial were all combined with a neuroscientist so that we could get all the brain science going in between all and these I'm things. And I'm sure there's some things out there that we just don't know about. So if any of our listeners know, let us know, because we'd love to, to talk to those people and, and get that insight. But yeah, that's fascinating. So I have a musical question for you, Kurt. You, oh my gosh, this is so new. <laughs> Who would have thought a musical question for me? All right. We were talking to Kiara about her three favorite artists. And she mentioned Jacques Brel, who... I have no clue is. Oh man, I just I just love Jacques Brel. Um Fabrizio DeAndre. I don't have any clue who Fabio Dablé. <laughs> I can't even pronounce Fabio's name, all right? Fabrizio. Is he the guy with the long hair that he, does? He does have No, not that guy. The, no. On the cover of all the books, the romantic novels, no. That, no. That's <laughs> 
<laughs> the third one that she mentioned was Leonard Cohen. I, and oh. in, in the audio, it was hard to tell that she said Leonard Cohen. Okay. So I clarified with her, and she was talking about Leonard Cohen. And so I mentioned this to you, and, and you had an interesting introduction to Leonard Cohen. Well, you're I not, love Leonard Cohen. How the hell did that happen? I love <laughs> Leonard, Leonard Cohen, you know? Uh, and it wasn't through Hallelujah and any of that yeah. kind of stuff. So my introduction was actually because of my... Uh, industrial music uh, love, right? Yeah. So uh, Trent Reznor is, uh, as he puts it on the Nine Inch Nails albums, Nine Inch Nails is Trent Reznor, right? Yeah, so yeah, yeah, he okay. does, for his first albums, he did, played all the music, did all, wrote all the songs, played all the instruments, did everything on them. And then he had a band for when he went out live. His later <laughs> yeah, albums, he's using some others. Anyway, yeah. that, which is, Irrelevant to the point we're trying to make, but it's it's how we it's how we roll here. Well, at behavioral oh, no, groups. I think actually Trent is regarded highly within the music industry as a very talented guy. He is so so. Actually, that's a really good point. So he had one of his first things that he did outside. I don't know if it's one of his first, but it was in his earlier years. Is he uh, did the soundtrack to Natural Born Killers. The Oliver Stone movie, brutal with brutal Woody film. Harrelson and Juliet Lewis, Lewis right? Yeah, yeah. Uh, and on there, he included um, Leonard Cohen. So, Waiting for a Miracle, uh, and then uh, what was the other? He had another Leonard Cohen song on there. I can't remember what it was. Oh, The Future. Oh yeah, you know which, mm-hmm. and he re-edited those. Yeah, remixed the, like, remixed re- recreated them, them. redid yeah. them, you know, and he did some, you know, and he also redid like Cowboy Junkies, Sweet Jane, yeah, uh, yeah. and and you know just some others, and along with some of his own, um, you know, uh, music from Nine Inch Nails and uh, different pieces. But so that was what got me interested in Leonard Cohen, and then I started looking into more of his music and. Back in the days when you had to buy CDs and, and albums, and I bought a whole bunch of them. And this soundtrack from Trent Reznor's movie uh, production got you engaged in Leonard Cohen. Yeah, yeah, yeah. back in the early, mid-90s. See, so. I think that that is so cool. That's a great way to learn about a, an artist that you weren't familiar with by hearing it from someone who's already familiar, right? This is a behavioral science thing, right? Yeah. Oh, he, oh you and I, I like you. You like somebody else, so I'll, I'll probably like them too. Yeah. Yeah, I think that that's that's pretty cool. And, I'm, and, I'm so glad. Yeah, and 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 Leonard Cohen, you like Leonard Cohen as well? I learned about Leonard Cohen from Judy Collins, and who is Judy Collins? <laughs> <laughs> so, okay, uh, quick explanation of who Judy Collins was in the folk era in the nineteen late mid nineteen sixties. Okay, Judy Collins was one of a handful of young women songwriters and performers who did a fabulous job of with their guitar of reproducing folk songs. Okay. That she was a, a folk singer. And she ends up having a romance with a guy named Stephen Stills who writes a song called Sweet Judy Blue Eyes that is a seven-minute uh, tribute to Judy Collins. Okay. And so that, that song became... I, I think I know who Stephen Stills is. Yeah, he recorded it with Crosby, Stills, and Nash. And okay. that, you know, so people, some people know Judy that way. But Judy sang some Leonard Cohen songs. Oh. Uh, and uh, Suzanne and uh, a bunch of really great tunes. Well, but, but that's how I became familiar with Leonard was uh, through Judy Collins. Right. It, it, what's really interesting is actually after 
being introduced to him and buying some of the CDs, I actually bought some of his poetry works. So I have a couple of Cohen's books somewhere, somewhere in the house back in the day when I used to read poetry. So you do listen to music that's pre-1978. You even read (laughs) poetry pre-1978. I, I, you know, just say yes. I don't want to admit it, yes. but there might be one or two, you know, I listened to Cohen stuff that was at post 78. Okay. You know, okay. come on, he's cool been, stuff. He's been a great writer for a long time. Yeah. Uh, and, and he, he was making music up until like, you know, just a his, couple his years last, before he his, died. Well, not even, it was a couple of months. He, he released his last album just a few a couple, months yeah. before he passed away. And I'm so glad that he actually finished the record and released it. Yeah. Rather than having it go undone and someone else wrap it up. Yeah. Uh, he was truly an artist up until the end. All Pretty right. great. With that, thank you, folks. And uh, stay tuned for our bonus track that's coming up. This is Tim with the bonus track and groove idea for the week. We talked about three important things with Kiara, and the first is that behavioral science is still relying on old school techniques to develop behavioral interventions. Most of the work behavioral scientists do is to look at two things, the intervention and the outcome. And they usually don't look at what happens in between, and that's the brain. So by ignoring what's happening in the brain, behavioral scientists are missing a key component to making behavior changes that last. We hope that as neurotechnology becomes more affordable and more portable, the easier this will be to study. Second, we were surprised by how the simplest things can have big impacts on our behavior. Kiara gave a great example of adding a map of the hospital to the appointment reminder for patients visiting the doctor made a big difference. It reminded Kurt and I that every little reduction in friction can make a positive difference. As simple as the addition was, and as easy it may be to spot in hindsight, I have to ask, how often do you get a map included with any appointment that you make? Okay, on to the third thing. A very cool part of our conversation was how our brains use dopamine and noradrenaline in our decision-making. These neurotransmitters help us make instantaneous calculations about whether or not we should take the effort to do something or not. In the world of corporate sales incentives, program designers need to be careful to ensure that the perceived value of the reward is large enough to outweigh the perceived level of effort required to earn it. Otherwise, participation and results will be weak. And that leads us to our groove idea for the week. Okay, I'd like you to think about what you're doing to reduce friction on the most important aspects of your life. It could be leading a healthier lifestyle or creating greater financial security for yourself. What are the little frictions that are getting in your way to getting on that treadmill 15 minutes or more uh, every week or increasing your weekly savings by another $50? If you can identify them, you can start doing something about them. Kiara's example of giving patients a map so they don't get lost was terrific. What could you do to smooth out some friction that might be keeping you from being a better you? Okay, with that, we have to thank you for listening because we like you. Behavioral Groups doesn't have any advertisers and we would be grateful if you could help us get the word out by recommending us to a friend. It would go a long way to expand the community of people interested in the applications of behavioral science. We hope you have a great week and keep on grooving.